So, how was everyone's week this week? Oh, excellent, excellent. Good weeks. I got to go to an amusement park yesterday, so I had an awesome week. Got to go on some roller coasters. It's always fun. This week, we are continuing our series looking at Jesus' seven sayings from the cross. And this week, I hope to get my slide, we're really kind of at a turning point week. So if you recall last week, we talked about the abandonment Jesus felt, the kind of isolation and the outpouring of wrath that happened, that this last week was kind of the culmination of everything that had been coming, what we've been working for. Now, for maybe my literary nerds out there, we enter the denouement of the story, or the kind of resolution. We've hit the high peak, and now we're just seeing everything wrap up. The ring has been destroyed, and now we have to kind of see what's going on back at the Shire, wrap things up. So that's really what this week and the next couple weeks are about, is kind of bringing this story to a close. So to do that, we're going to start in John 19, and I'm going to start reading in verse 28 here. After this, knowing that everything was already completed, in order to fulfill the scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Now, for a seemingly simple verse, there is a ton for us to really unpack here. So we'll start at the beginning. After this, what is the this? If we're looking at John by itself, this comes right after our message from a couple weeks ago, where Jesus talks to his mother and says, woman, here is your son, you know, disciple, here, here is your mother, that kind of thing. This is the next verse. So the context of John after this is that. If you look at the larger context, because of kind of what happens after in John and all these other factors, the after this is seeming to refer to a larger picture. The after the wrath, after last week what we talked about, after the isolation, after kind of the peak, the event, after the sin had been paid for. So this is kind of, this is this big turning point moment. This is, the peak has happened and now we're after this after everything we've talked about so far. Knowing that everything was already completed. This is a complicated, weird little line that can, we're gonna be talking about a lot that's gonna cause us some issues. So the work was done, right? Everything had been completed. The punishment had been exacted, the sins had been forgiven, the abandonment, everything we talked about last week, that had happened. Think of this as maybe finishing a race. So, I know I have, a, I have a couple runners out there, right? R raise your hand if you like to run. I see, okay, I see a couple hands coming up there. Raise your hand if you have to run sometimes, so you kind of maybe know what I'm talking about. A little bit, okay, okay a few more hands going up, okay. So, I'm one of those weird people that enjoys running. Um, when I ran competitively, I was a sprinter, so I ran the shorter distances. The longest race I ran competitively was the 400. So, one lap around the track, a quarter mile. I would argue that is the absolute worst race you could ever run. The distance runners are going to call me a giant baby, but I hated that race. Conversely, that was the one I was best at, so it's the one I had to run the most, but it is. The human body, you can sprint at top speed for 20, 25 meters at most. This is 400, so it is a controlled death almost going around. I absolutely hated it. But the feeling after you cross the finish line, those first like step or two after it, that is the absolute best feeling in the world. The just, the weight is off. The, and then all the pain and stuff kicks back in, but you have a glorious like half second that is the absolute best feeling. The weight is gone. 
Maybe you could think of it like a big job interview, a big exam, something that has stressed you out a lot. The second it's over, even regardless of how you think you did or whatever, you have that initial, all right, it's over. The weight is off. And so that's, that's where we are here. That's what we're in this moment of, this half-second pause to take a breath. In order to fulfill Scripture, this line, this little paragraph, or not paragraph, phrase here, how we understand this really can change this entire passage. What is this referring to in order to fulfill Scripture? Is it referring to what came immediately before, knowing that everything was already completed in order to fulfill Scripture? Or is it referring to what comes after it? In order to fulfill Scripture, Jesus said. Where's it going? Well, as with a lot of things, you'll assume, well, let's look at the Greek, see what that says. That's not much help, because the Greek itself is very ambiguous. Um, in Greek, word order doesn't matter. It's endings of words that tell you kind of where they go and such. And in this one, the ending could, the endings of this phrase mean it could conceivably, grammatically, go with either one. Which one does it go with? We're going to come back to that, because for that we need to kind of fill in a little bit. But this is a real keystone phrase here. How does this phrase play kind of affects this passage? So we're going to come back to this. Keep this in your head. Jesus said, I'm thirsty, or I thirst. Whatever your translations say, same idea. A lot of people and a lot of kind of early commentators link this to Psalm 69, and specifically Psalm 69, verse 21. They gave me poison for food to quench my thirst. They gave me vinegar to drink. And the reason why most people associate this passage, or prior, a lot of people associated Jesus' quote with this passage, is John uses Psalm 69 a lot throughout the gospel. This seemingly is like John's favorite uh, psalm because he uses it over and over again specifically to allude to Jesus' crucifixion. It is a psalm that kind of speaks into that, and so John utilizes that quite a bit. There's kind of a problem with this, though. If we look at this, this is poetry. It's broken up into what's called a parallel or a couplet. So you have one thing and something that follows. The thing that follows either is reiterating the thing above, being in parallel, or is heightening the thing above. So an example of this heightening might be, God is good, God is great. Same idea, but the second one is upping the stakes, heightening it. So if we look at this, they gave me poison for food. That is obviously bad, right? You don't want poison for food. To quench my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Same idea, right? If you're thirsty, vinegar's not going to cut it. That's not what you want. So the idea is both of these are negative, have a negative connotation. So keep that in our heads. We're kind of setting up a lot of pieces to come back to later. Keep that in your head. Bad, food, poison, bad, vinegar, drink, bad, right? We can all agree on that. All right, jumping down. Next verse. A jar full of sour wine was nearby. So the soldiers soaked a sponge in it, placed it on a hyssop branch, and held it up to his lips. So uh, this is an interesting area here, like what 
do they translate this sour wine? A lot of them will translate it as sour wine. Some translations will translate it as vinegar. It is seemingly, according to most scholars, a very specific drink. It is corked or sour wine mixed with water. This is a drink called um, Posecca. Not Prosecco, not that. Posecca. It was a very common drink um, in the Roman army. You might think of it like Roman Gatorade. That's kind of the equivalent of what it was. Uh, we have accounts of when it would be drunk versus water. So specifically one, um, Cato the Elder is a kind of Roman uh, general. And in his accounts, he says, when I thirst, I call for water. When my thirst is raging, I call for Posecca. So this idea, think of it, it's Gatorade, basically. You know, it's that idea, Roman Gatorade. So if the soldiers are giving Jesus this, which makes sense that it would be there, because that's the drink the soldiers would drink. If it's there and they're giving it to Jesus, this doesn't seem to be a malicious act. This doesn't seem to be a bad or a negative act. If it is the drink that they drink when they get thirsty, if it's what's on hand for them, it's almost like giving a tired person Gatorade. So if this isn't a malicious act, if this isn't an act taken in the negative, like, oh, let's give this guy Gatorade, that's one last thing, then if we jump backwards, how do we do this in order to fulfill scripture? If it's not a negative, then can we really link it to Psalm 69? Food, poison, bad. Vinegar, drink, bad. If it's not a bad thing, they're giving him Gatorade, then we might not be able to link that with Psalm 69. And now more and more scholars are thinking that way, that, well, this linking doesn't seem to be what's going on here. So, and I think also that fits in with a theme we kind of touched on last week, because if it's in order to fulfill scripture, Jesus said, I am thirsty, it makes it feel like Jesus has a checklist in his head of things I have to say while I'm dying. And I feel like that diminishes things a little bit, right? If you have this, I have to make this scripture, so I have to, now I have to say this, now I have to say this, now I have to say this. To me, that really shrinks things down a little bit. But if we take the in order to fulfill scripture back to what happened previously, knowing that everything was already completed in order to fulfill scripture, that gives us a much wider view of what's just happened. The act that we talked about way back, was talking way back in Genesis, when God is talking to Eve and says, you know, you're, you're going to bear a child, and so forth, so on. The child from you will bruise, will, will, will bite the snake off the head. Why am I can't talk this morning? <laughs> Your child will stomp the head of the snake, and the snake will bite, will, will, will bite their ankle. That, that scripture might be fulfilled, even way back in Genesis. So it's not just a Jesus remembering, I have to say I'm thirsty. It's so much more, and I think to me brings this moment to such a grander scope and scale that the scripture that's being fulfilled is one that started way, way long ago is continually moving forward and talked about and talked about. It is everything that has just happened is the fulfillment of Scripture. It moves things up so much more. Is everyone kind of on board with that? Do I have any 
angry people out there disagreeing. <laughs> so that's just kind of um, how I would read this so far. Now, let's jump back into the verse we're in because we kind of have an idea of where we are now. The I'm thirsty maybe isn't to just fulfill scripture. So what, what is it doing? Why, why is this in here? So, move on. They placed this drink, so the sponge soaked in a drink, on a hyssop branch and held it up to his lips. What is a hyssop branch? First off, as I say, there is a ton of writing on the allegories of this section. Like, it is, you can fall down the rabbit hole hard of this, looking at, well, the sour wine represents this, 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 going down the rabbit hole. The, the sponge represents this, this, and this. The hyssop branch going down the hole. There's a ton of stuff there. For us today, we're going to stay pretty simple. We're not going to dive too deep. In short, this is hyssop. Hyssop was a plant used in many purification rituals in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, in Exodus, when Moses tells the people, daub the blood on your doorsteps so the, death, the angel of death will pass you by, they're supposed to daub it on with hyssop. Uh, Psalms mentioned hyssop numerous times. It's Psalm 51 talks about, you know, purge me with hyssop and I will be clean. So it's a plant used in purification rituals. And so there may be some association with that here, right? You know, its original association is with the Passover lamb. Jesus is that fulfillment, the ultimate Passover lamb. It's associated with purification rituals. Jesus' death for us is the ultimate purification ritual. Like, there's some of that going on. But it is also just a very, very common plant in, in the Near East. And it's funny, if you look at historic documents, a number of things that will call out, this is hyssop, this is hyssop. They are obviously describing different plants. So there's at least six or seven different plants that get grouped together as just called hyssop. So we don't know, like, if it was this, this doesn't seem like to be something that would have been able to stick on a pole and hold a sponge up, so it was probably not what we would think of as hyssop. But all of that aside, this is just a way I talk about when we go through and read scripture, how not to fall down the almost Bible code level, this means this, and we have to follow this and this and this through, right? Like, that's, that's something we can fall into so often. Um, but I think at this base level, this hyssop is this idea of purification. It's just this kind of continuing of these natural elements that we see from the Old Testament. And John is an interesting one because John loves allegories. As we talked about kind of earlier, John loves the Psalm 69 allegory. But John is also very, very good about explaining his allegories. When he talks about something, he'll reference a scripture, and then almost to a fault, over-explain it to make sure it's understood. And so that's why I'm hesitant to kind of really fall down the rabbit hole here. But just think about it as this idea of purification. A ritual, it's a continuation of the Passover lamb. It's a continuation of these purification rituals. So that was a lot of kind of almost school stuff thrown at you. What does this mean? What, how does this relate to this passage? How can this relate to us today in a spiritual sense? What is the main backbone theme of John, the book where this passage is from today? Anyone have a guess? What John focuses on more than any other gospel? Yes? Right, let's, let's walk through together and see. So let's start John 1. In the beginning, the Word was, or, excuse me, <clears throat> in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning. Everything came into being through the Word, and without the Word, nothing came into being. What, what came into being through the Word was life, and the life was the light for all people. John, this part here, focuses on the Word as being Jesus, and Jesus being very divine, right? This is, you know, the Word was God. God from the beginning, John focusing on this very divine aspect of, of Jesus. But John is also the gospel that goes on to say this in verse 14. The word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John really focuses on Jesus' humanity. John is maybe the gospel that most holds these two in tension. Jesus as fully divine and fully human, and how these two interact. Like other gospels don't, you know, not say he's divine or not say he's human, but John is the one that really showcases these two and what it means for Jesus. So the idea of Jesus being thirsty, that is about as human as you are going to get. Right? That is about as basic as a human need as you are going to have. I resisted showing another nerdy clip this week. There's a great clip from the first season of Picard that talks about this and uses this idea of drinking as this essence of being human. I, I resisted this week, so you're lucky, but I think it's just fascinating that Jesus is thirsty. In this moment, the one who provides the living water that what you have, you will never thirst, is thirsty in this moment. That's what he feels the most right now. And to me, this really, really reminds us of Jesus' humanity. And I think that is something we can often overlook, especially around Easter. We focus on the kind of big scale, which we should, right? The, the redemption side, the Jesus as God came to earth. And we should focus on that. That, that's super important. But Jesus as a human is just as important. That reminder that you know, Jesus felt what we felt. Jesus' humanity is just as important as Jesus' divinity for our salvation. Had Jesus just been fully God, come to earth, died and everything, that wouldn't have meant anything. That human fully human side, fully human element of Jesus had to be there. So this is just John reminding us of that. It reminds us that Jesus felt what we feel. Every emotion we have felt, Jesus has probably felt. The circumstances might be different. I'm sure Jesus never had to deal with, you know, fighting with a computer, right? But I'm sure there were things that Jesus had to deal with that frustrated him giving him that same anger. You know, Jesus was a carpenter. I'm sure he was working with tools or something that just absolutely frustrated him. So the situations are different, but the feelings, the emotions are the same. Jesus was fully human. And to me, that just means so much, that we do not serve a God that is this kind of disjointed, disconnected God floating out in space, who, you know, if you're quoting like my, one of my grandparents, has never worked a day in his life or something like that, right? That's not the God we serve. 
We serve a God who was present, who was tangibly on this earth and felt what we felt, went through the emotions we did, had the experiences we experienced. So to me, that means when we go to Jesus, when we talk with Jesus, we can do it with every confidence that Jesus understands. Because there's a decent chance Jesus has gone through that emotion before, that Jesus experienced that emotion, that turmoil, that whatever it is, Jesus has experienced it, and so knows what you are going through. Just, you know, sit in that for a second. The creator of the universe has gone through the emotions that we go through on a day-to-day basis. For 30-plus years, Jesus experienced those emotions with us. To me, that is just ridiculously amazing. It's really hard, for honestly, for me to comprehend a lot of times. Jesus, when I get angry, when I get frustrated, when I get mad, Jesus has felt that. Like, think about that. Jesus, did did Jesus get mad? I mean, if you read some of the gospel stories, it really seems like Jesus got mad sometimes. Jesus knows what that emotion is like. But when we talk with Jesus, we're talking with someone who has experienced what we have experienced, felt what we felt, and so much more. 